Well, I hope that you've uh, made your way to 1 Timothy this morning. Uh, the book of 1 Timothy is towards the end of your Bible. And so you get all of these books that start with the letter T. So you get 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, you get Titus. They're all grouped together there. So flip in your Bible until you find the books that start with the letter T, and you're probably going to get close. Book of 1 Timothy this morning. This is our uh, new series that we're going to begin this year. We're going to go through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They're often known as the pastoral epistles. So you have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And the reason they're known as the pastoral epistles is because Paul wrote these letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, to Timothy and Titus when he sent them back to established churches to set things in order. In other words, he sent Timothy and Titus to these two different spots so that they could remind God's people of God's plan for the church. And so here in 1 Timothy, it's a letter that's written to Timothy while he's at Ephesus. And you're probably familiar with the church of Ephesus because we have the book of what? Ephesians, right? So Paul had already written the book of Ephesians, but there's some trouble in the church, some things that needed to be realigned. And so he sends Timothy to the church of Ephesus to help set things in order. Well, here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and this morning I'd like to look at verses 1 through 11. I'll read the text, and when I finish verse 11, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Would you please follow along as I read 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and then look into this text. Father, we give thanks this morning for your word. Let it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let it be the loudest and clearest voice in our life. You say, my sheep hear my voice. And so today we want to be your sheep. We want to hear your voice. Lord, we acknowledge this morning that there are so many competing voices. There's so much white noise. There are so many opinions that reach us each day. And yet the one voice that we need to hear this morning is your voice. So teach us, lead us, help us submit to you. We still have inclinations in our heart to be like sheep going astray, going our own way. But you're the good shepherd and help us to hear your voice. Help us to follow you and learn of you. Help us to obey you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the letter of 1 Timothy, it was written by Paul somewhere around 64 AD. So think to yourself, about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and ascended, about 30 years later, Paul writes this letter. Now we see the mention of Paul's authorship in verse 1. Take a look right at the opening of the text. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. But then as we go on reading, we discover who the letter is addressed to. It's in verse number two. It's his ministry companion. It's his spiritual son. Look at verse two. It says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now at this point, and some people kind of think this mistakenly, they think to themselves, this is a pastoral letter written from Paul to Timothy, and I'm not a pastor, and my name isn't Timothy, so what does it have to do with me? Well, Timothy was the primary recipient, but there is a broader readership in mind. We know that because of the close of this book. Turn all the way to the end of the book. I mean, it's only like two pages, so it's not a big deal. Go all the way to the end. Go all the way to the last phrase in 1 Timothy. Kind of put your finger there. You're right at the end of 1 Timothy. Do the same thing with 2 Timothy. Go all the way in and just see if you can find the parallel between these two books. Right at the end, these two books, he says the same thing. Do you see it there? Right at the end of both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it's the very last phrase. And what is it? Grace to you. Well, not exactly. You see, Paul was from the South. It actually is grace to y'all. That's what it really is. Because that pronoun you is a second person plural pronoun. Now that may not mean anything to you at this moment, but pause for a second. He's not merely writing to Timothy. That would be a second person singular. You. He doesn't say grace to you, Timothy. He says, grace to y'all, which informs us that this letter is not merely for Timothy. There's a broader audience in mind. This letter was meant to be read 
in front of the church. You could think about it as like a public recommendation or a letter of reference rather than private correspondence. Perhaps it was more like the instruction of a seasoned surgeon as he speaks to a surgical resident. Can you picture it? There's someone laid out in the OR. There's a skilled surgeon, and he has a surgical resident that's watching him. And this skilled surgeon who's done many of these surgeries before is telling him exactly what he's doing, and he's teaching him. But there's also not just the surgeon and the surgical resident, but there's all these medical school students that are in the gallery. They're like up in the loft up there, like those guys up there. Go ahead and wave so everybody can see you guys. Okay, so those are all the medical school students. And they're looking down and listening in. The surgeon has a microphone and there's a camera that's projecting exactly what he's doing up on a screen so that the students can see. And that's what's happening with this book. Paul is the surgeon. Timothy is the surgical resident. But the church are medical school students. And they're listening in on what Paul is saying here. Basically, Paul wanted to direct Timothy. And through him, Paul wanted to direct the whole church of Ephesus. So that they would be in a rightly ordered state in which the truth of God would be upheld for the glory of God in Ephesus. So I want to pause. This book is good for us. Because we need to learn, Gospel Grace Church, we need to learn how the truth of God can be upheld for the glory of God in Salt Lake City. You see this purpose come to bear in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Some books of the Bible give you their purpose statement really clearly, and this one does. So if you underline in your Bible or you highlight on your app, you could highlight 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Paul says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things. In other words, I'm writing this letter so that, for this purpose, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now go back to the opening of the letter. Go back to chapter one and look at verse three. Look at what Paul wants Timothy to do. Do you see it there in verse three? He says this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Now Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus And he wanted him to stay there, remain there. Now, we don't know the precise beginnings of the church of Ephesus, but we do know that Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's tent-making friends, were involved in the early formation of the church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. Paul drops off his friends, Priscilla and Aquila, in Ephesus as he's on his way to Antioch. This is in about 52 AD. They stay there for some time, and then we read in Acts chapter 19 that on Paul's third missionary journey, he returns to Ephesus, and catch this, Paul stays in Ephesus longer than any other of his church plants. 
He stays there at least two years and three months. We know that because what happened is he started teaching in the synagogue, and later on he says he rented this place called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he would preach there daily. And so Paul spends this time, kind of this extended time in Ephesus. Ephesus is a unique church plant because the people who were involved in that church plant include Aquila and Priscilla, Apollos, chapter 18 of Acts, as Apollos was there, Paul, Timothy, that's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and later on, the Apostle John. The later years of John's life were here in Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. So there's a lot that's going on in this place. A very important church plant in the first century expansion of the Christian mission. But I want you to understand that ministry in Ephesus was not easy. Even though there was an amazing work of God, it caused a great stir in that city. This is what happened, and you can read about it again in Acts chapter 19 later today. So many people in Ephesus came to understand the true and living God and put their trust in Jesus as the Savior of the world. So many people did that that it made a dent in the idol production of the city. The silversmiths' guilds were so impacted by Christians no longer buying idols for the goddess Diana that they had a little gathering and they incited a riot in Ephesus. They were so upset that these Christians were no longer buying idols and there were so many of them that were coming to faith that it impacted the industry. They created a riot and things got violent in Ephesus. So yes, there was a great work of God. There were many people coming to Christ, but the result was tumultuous times in Ephesus. This is how, this is how Paul speaks to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He characterizes his ministry this way. He says, it was a time of tears and trials. Tears and trials. God was doing a great work, but it was a very difficult work. And then the last time that Paul sees the elders of Ephesus, this is what he says to them. Acts chapter 20, verse 19. And I want you to hear this because what Paul says actually comes to pass about three, four years later. And that's what's being dealt with in 1 Timothy. Here's what Paul warns them about. Acts chapter 20, verse 19. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So the last time Paul sees the elders from the church of Ephesus, he says, I'm just warning you guys. When I leave here, there are going to be people from inside the church. They're wolves. They look like sheep, but they're wolves. And they're going to begin to teach twisted things. And they're going to try to draw people after themselves. That was his warning and that's what came to bear in Ephesus. So that's why he has to send Timothy. You're wondering, why did Timothy have to go to Ephesus? 
because what Paul said was going to happen actually happened. He's going to send Timothy back to Ephesus to set things in order and put a stop to false teaching. Close the mouths of these wolves. I'm telling you all this background information because I want you to realize that this ministry post was not an easy place to serve. In other words, when Timothy got this letter from Paul to remain at Ephesus, he wasn't like, yes, I get to stay in Hawaii, yes. No, he was like, really? I can't leave? I think there might be another post that God wants me to go to. I think there might be an easier place where I should go. I think there's a preferred exit strategy that I want to pursue, a different appointment altogether. Do I really have to stay? And Paul is writing this letter, and in verse number three, he says, like I told you before, I'm telling you again, you remain at Ephesus. Things are bad. They may have been getting worse, and Timothy had to stay. Now, let me tell you a few things about Timothy so that you can understand his reticence about this tough revitalization work in Ephesus. Turning the church of Ephesus around wasn't going to be an easy task. And Timothy was a rather young pastor. We get that from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Timothy 4, 12, Paul writes this, let no one despise you for your youth. He was probably in his mid-30s, and in that culture, he didn't wield the weight of aged wisdom or sage advice. He was a, a young whippersnapper, as they would have called him, maybe. But by people's estimation, he was comparatively young. And not only that, Timothy was temperamentally shy. He regularly needed encouragement and reassurance. He didn't have the boldness and gusto, the self-confidence and the rooted identity to just do what God wanted him to do. No, he second-guessed himself. I wonder if that sounds like some of us. Like, we, we know what God wants us to do, but we're not quite sure that we should do it or we're the right person for it or if it will really get done. We're shy, maybe introverted. We're second-guessers. Well, that's how Timothy was. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes, God has not given us a spirit of fear, Timothy, but of power, love, and, a self, and self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Timothy was young, somewhat insecure, and he was sick. That's another reason why this was going to be tough for Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, we learn that he suffered from some physical infirmity that caused stomach issues. Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 5, 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Ephesus is a hard place to serve. The church had some serious problems. It had some wolves. And Timothy had his own set of frailties. So I think in the opening of this letter, Paul just wanted to encourage his friend to stay the course. Timothy, don't give up. Don't quit, Timothy. I, I know it's hard. I know what God has called you to do. 
seems difficult, but stay the course. You know, I wonder if that's a word that some of us need today as well. Maybe the new year has not been filled with successful accomplishments of all your resolutions. Maybe here we are, it is the 14th, and you've already quit on those resolutions. Maybe you're just slogging it out. Maybe it's just the daily grind of another overcast Tuesday. Maybe you're stuck in the same trials as last year. Maybe January feels extra dark, cold. Maybe you'd rather run to your bed and beckon a Netflix binge instead of going to the work that God's called you to do. I wonder if some of you feel more like giving up than pressing on. I wonder if some of you feel more like retreating than advancing, more like quitting than going forward. And if that's you, then you need to listen to Paul's words, stay the course. There are a few things that are going on in these opening verses that I want to show you. Sometimes when we read the opening of these letters, it feels like filler. Like, okay, yeah, dear Timothy, I hope you have a great day and life is going well. Okay, let's get to the meat, you know. I mean, sometimes I think these openings of these letters, it's like, okay, there's the greeting formula and let's get on. But I don't think that's what's going on in this text. I think actually Paul is using these first few verses to try to strengthen his friend for the task that's at hand. He wants Timothy to keep going and stay the course, to remain at Ephesus, even though he feels like quitting, and even though it's hard, even though Timothy would rather hit the eject button, even though Timothy would rather not deal with these problems, even though the confrontation that lies ahead is going to be very difficult, Paul wants him to keep on keeping on. Notice in the opening of our text how Paul makes some helpful connections for Timothy regarding the authority that stands behind his difficult task. It's not as though Timothy is sent to Ephesus to be a self-appointed guru. He's not supposed to go there and be like, hey, hi, everybody. My name's Timothy. Maybe you've heard of me. I want to tell you how to fix this church. No, that's not how it was going to go. Paul grounds his friend in a succession of authority that gives him the right to speak to the church of Ephesus. Do you see the succession of authority in the opening verses of the text? I mean, look at verse number one. Take a look. This is not filler. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. There are other people in the New Testament who are called apostles of the church. The word apostle means sent one. When Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's talking about the office of apostleship that has authority from Christ. I am sent by Christ himself, Paul says. And not only that, I've been commanded by God the Father. Do you see that there? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy. So authority starts with God, is given to Paul, is relegated to Timothy, and now Timothy is supposed to go talk to certain persons. Do you, do you see that in verse number three? I love that. I mean, who are these certain persons? Look at this. I urged you 
when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. I was trying to think, like, what is this like? In our family, there's a birthday coming up this week. And it's Liesl's. I won't tell you how old she's going to be. It's Liesl's birthday, my wife's birthday this week. And I could go home at lunch this afternoon, and I could sit around the table, and I, I could say, you know, there's a certain person who has a birthday coming up this week. A certain person. And everyone at the table knows exactly who I'm talking about, right? We all, and all of you now know. <laughs> a certain person. So I think when Paul writes this, he says, there are certain persons. And as soon as that was read in the church of Ephesus, everyone would have turned and looked at those certain persons. <laughs> like, we all know who they are. There are certain persons. So here's what Paul's doing to help Timothy. He's saying, listen, I want you to follow the chain of command and do the hard thing. Because it's not just you going to Ephesus saying whatever it is you feel like. No, there's God who commanded me, who's commanded you to go command these certain people to be quiet. So take heart, Timothy. You're not making up a message. You're passing along a command. So follow the chain of command. I'm under orders, Paul says. You're under orders. So do this. But not only follow the chain of command, I think what Paul's trying to do to strengthen his friend here is he's just calling him to also focus on who God is and what it is that God provides so that he can do this hard work. And I want to pause for a moment. Some of you know what God wants you to do in your life, but it is not easy. And whatever your role is or whatever your job is, what, whatever your vocation is, the place that he's put you, you know this is what God has for your life. You feel confident of that. It's just not easy. It's not going well. Things are not going by smoothly. In those moments when you feel weak and you want to quit, you need to remember who God is and what he provides. And that's what Paul is trying to tell Timothy. Like, take a look at our text. Like, verse number one. Remember that God is our Savior. Remember verse number one. Remember, Christ Jesus is our hope. Remember, we have a father who can handle this. We have a Lord or master who is sovereign, even in the toughest times. You see, he's dripping these little words about who God is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior. Our Savior, Timothy. Christ Jesus, our hope. Our hope, Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. Timothy, remember he's your father. And remember that Jesus is your Lord. That's who he is. And listen to what he provides. Verse 2, do you see what he provides? Grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy needed to find strength in God's grace. He needed to know that the Lord looked at him in his situation with mercy. Hey, some of you, you're like, I know I'm doing God's will. It's very hard. Does God even see me? Yes, he has mercy on you. He wants to strengthen you with grace. He wants to comfort you with mercy. 
and he wants to provide for you his peace. Doing God's will might be hard, but you can have peace in the midst of it. Grace, mercy, and peace. Follow the chain of command, Timothy. Focus on God and stay the course. Well, Timothy, verse number three, was supposed to remain at Ephesus because there was work to do in that church. The fact is, this young pastor was supposed to stay the course for a particular reason. Stay the course, Timothy, because you have to stop the garbage that's being taught in Ephesus. The reason you have to remain there, the reason you can't hit the eject button, the reason you can't be deployed to Hawaii is because there are false teachers there that are spreading all kinds of garbage in the church. And you need to shut it down. False teaching was spreading through the church of Ephesus. And Timothy was supposed to remain there. Look at verse number three. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge. The, the word is command, you know, like command them. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Remember what Paul had already foretold years before. Remember in Acts chapter 20, it was about four years earlier, Paul had said there are going to be wolves. They're going to teach twisted things. They're going to lead people astray. And so Timothy needed to stay in Ephesus to stop the garbage of false teaching that was spreading in the church. False teaching is a dangerous thing. I wonder if sometimes in the American church, we have grown dull to our need for awareness regarding false teaching. We just show up, we do our thing, made it to Sunday, listened to the sermon, it was kind of long, I wish I was more awake. Can I get another cup of coffee? Go home. Wait, you need to listen with discernment. You need to beware of false teaching. Do you realize that almost every New Testament epistle has warnings about false teaching? It's a serious thing, a dangerous thing. There's so much at stake. In the book of 1 Timothy, False teaching was causing people, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, to make a shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it was causing people to depart from the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 15, it was causing people to stray after Satan. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, it was causing people to wander from the faith. 1 Timothy 6, 21, it was causing people to swerve from the faith, there's a lot at stake here when false teaching enters the church. So Timothy was supposed to stay in Ephesus and stop the garbage, shut down the false teaching, silence the heresy before it sinks the church. I don't think you'd have to, I, mean, I don't think you'd have to contemplate this very long to think about how false teaching has sunk certain churches even entire denominations. 
They've sunk because of false teaching. And so Paul says here in verse number three, you charge these people. In other words, you command them. That's what the word means. It's a military term. You pass on this command. Command them not to teach a different doctrine. Order them. Make them shut up. Silence their teaching. Don't let them talk. Now, I'm emphasizing that word because we live in an era where it's like, oh, let's just all get along. It's not a very popular approach these days to tell people to be quiet. Stop teaching that. You can't talk that way. That's not welcome here. I mean, it's like we don't don't do that. We live in an era of pluralism where even people who fill Christian churches somehow mistakenly believe that all roads lead to Rome. Pluralism. They don't. We live in an age of postmodernism where there are no absolutes. Stop talking like you have the right answer. That might be right for you. Relativism. That's your truth. Let me share my truth. A culture of subjectivism, where what you feel is what really matters. My friends, that might be our era, but that wouldn't have worked with Paul. Paul believed there was absolute truth that is not subservient to your feelings, and it will not be relativized by culture. You command those people to stop teaching a different doctrine. It wasn't, well, let's give them some airtime and then you can have some airtime. No. He realized that there was only one orthodoxy and everything else is heterodoxy. He realized that their teaching was in conflict with verse number four where it says the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, there is true doctrine And it is based on the one who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Notice he says here in verse number three, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you can charge certain persons not to teach any, underline these two words, not to teach any different Doctrine. It reminds us of some of the other passages that Paul wrote. Different doctrine, different gospel, different Jesus, different spirit. No, there aren't different ones. There's only one. Do you remember when he warned the church of Galatia in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6? He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There's not a different doctrine or a different gospel or a different Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Paul writes there. I'm afraid 
that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a, seer, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, a different Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but their end will correspond with their deeds. I know the bumper sticker says, make America kind again. But it's not kind to let false doctrine go unchecked in the church. It's not kind to let false doctrine damn people to eternal destruction and stand idly by while it happens. That's not kind. And we need to be more loving than that. And so that's what Paul tells Timothy to do. He says, you go stop the garbage from spreading in the church of Ephesus. Now, what was the nature of the false teaching that these people were embarking on? Okay. In Ephesus, these divergent leaders were bent on fanciful literature and fatuous speculations. Look at verse number four. Fanciful literature, fatuous speculations. Verse number four. He calls them myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In other words, instead of grounding their teaching in the stewardship from God that is by faith, God's word, instead of grounding their teaching in God's word, they come up with other stories, additional books, Myths, endless genealogies. These false teachers were likely using Old Testament genealogies and trying to fill in the blanks with fictional stories. Have you, I mean, you've read through the Old Testament. You get this list and so-and-so, I can't pronounce your name, begat so-and-so, I can't pronounce your name, who begat so-and-so, I can't pronounce your name. And you get these long lists of people's names. You've been there? Well, what was going on in the first century? And it happened even like 100 years before that. They have actual books like the Book of Jubilee, these fanciful stories where they take Old Testament genealogies and say, and this guy begat this guy. Oh, do you know who this guy was? And then they create a whole story about this person's life. It's fictional. But they're trying to fill in the blanks with these myths based on these genealogies. They're making up stories. They're using the Old Testament as a springboard for their fictional tales. How does this happen today? Well, maybe people allegorize things or spiritualize things. Maybe people today copy the verbiage, you know, kind of like the genre feel of the Bible, and they kind of write their own additional books. They craft new legends of their own. They come up with these other stories that aren't in the Bible and yet they treat them as authoritative, fanciful stories, fixation on genealogies, myths claiming to be divine works. It, it still happens in our day too. 
And Paul says that's what was going on in the church of Ephesus. Today we have things like apocryphal books that people look to, the Gospel of Thomas, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, the Bible Code, speculations, myths, legends, fables. This Bible Code, this one, I got to tell you about this one. This one was written by, there's this mathematician who claimed to have decoded the Bible with a computer formula, unlocking 3,000-year-old prophecies of events such as the Kennedy assassination, the election of Bill Clinton, and everything from the Holocaust to Hiroshima. This is in the dust cover. Everything from the Holocaust to Hiroshima, from the moon landing to the collision of a comet with Jupiter. And he figured it out. The Bible has a hidden code in it to tell you about the election of Bill Clinton. I mean, really? <laughs> Fantastic claims of new truth, religious novelties, special answers that have been somehow missed by millennia of believers, people coming up with this, speculating, novel myths, new stories, interpreted riddles, uncovered ancient secrets. They sell books, but they're garbage. Yes, you heard it here. No, you heard it here. It's garbage. There are Christians who spend more of their time studying fanciful myths and endless genealogies than they do God's word. You know, I was trying to really think about this warning and how this applies to our church today. And I'm going to tell you the places where I have concern. My concern is that Christians go about their lives trying to solve problems, make sense of life, see their way ahead without the Bible. I mean, they show up to church, they get the little alarm on their iWatch, their Apple Watch that gives them the verse of the day. Oh, look, my verse of the day. They have their little calendar on their, on their work desk that gives them the inspirational thought from the Bible. But all of these things are, are springboards for their day in which they go into godless pursuits for the rest of their time. I mean, think about psychology with no place for sin or salvation. I mean, you read all those books. You, you've been on all the blogs. They're going to fix all of your problems from a perspective that has no God and no sin. Or self-help books where you are the deliverer of your life. I mean, look at how it can improve your life. It's all about you and there is no Messiah. You're the Messiah. Like, I'm worried about Christians who spend their days digging through those books while this one collects dust. Beware of endless genealogies and myths that will lead you astray from the truth. Let this be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, my friends. People in Ephesus were turning away from God's word. They were turning to other things. Friends, I mean, let, it, let it be our clarion call. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Let, let God's word be what you need for life and godliness. 
In the end, Paul says that these myths and endless genealogies produce nothing more than vain discussion. Verse number six, do you see that? Vain discussion, empty talk, waste of time, fanciful religious literature, fatuous speculations about doctrinal subtleties are in conflict with sound doctrine. They're not benign. They're not merely entertaining. They're dangerous. Do you see what he says about these false teachers? Their teaching does not issue, verse 5, it does not issue from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith like Paul's doctrine does. Instead, it emanates from people who have left those things far behind. They've swerved from these things, verse 6. They've wandered away from these things. And Paul is saying, charge them to stop. Command them to be quiet. Don't let them continue in the church. Any doctrine which is different from true doctrine is false doctrine. Timothy was supposed to remain in Ephesus because there were serious deeds there. He was supposed to stay the course. And even though there were evil influencers with lots of subscribers, he was supposed to stop the garbage. But how could he possibly do that? How could an import like Timothy go to a place like Ephesus and stop the false teaching that already had roots in the church? Here's how. He had to stick to the gospel. Stay the course, stop the garbage. Stick to the gospel. Notice in verse 7 how these false teachers wanted to be law teachers. They didn't even know what they're talking about. I mean, sure, these false teachers looked confident and they spoke authoritatively, but it says in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they're making confident assertions. I mean, I, I'm just going to tell you, I have a lot of books at my house, a lot of books. I Amazon is like Christmas. I get these books. I love them. Sometimes I get books that are garbage books because I want to know what the garbage books say so that we can stomp them down. And I have some garbage books, and these authors, I mean, they write so confidently. They're like, wow, oh, they've got it figured out. Wow, they got a PhD from Chapel Hill. Wow, in some field that has nothing to do with the Bible. You ever read that? I mean, like, turn the book over and read what they actually studied. And it may not be anything related to what they're making confident assertions about. Suddenly, they know more. They have a history degree from Chapel Hill, but they know more than all the New Testament scholars put together. Wow, that's amazing. This historian now has figured out everything about the New Testament, even though they've never studied it. Wow. They make confident assertions, but they have no idea what they're talking about. There's these books that are published, and they're filled with fatuous garbage. Paul is saying here, these false teachers wanted to be law teachers, but they didn't know what they're talking about. The law, he says, verse number eight, needs to be used lawfully. The law needs to be used in connection with the gospel. When the law is used lawfully, friends, it diagnoses man's sickness. Verse number eight. Verse number nine, I'm sorry. Verse number nine. The law is not laid down for the just. Pause and just like think in parentheses. The law is not laid down for the just as though any of us are just. 
for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. You could put in parentheses, for people like you and me. The law is laid down to diagnose our sickness. It's to show us that we are lawbreakers. I mean, look at the representative list of sins that Paul mentions. It just shows us how we're all lawbreakers. Like verse number nine, it's like, you know, the law is for those who strike fathers and mothers. It's for murderers. It's for sexually immoral people. It's for men who practice homosexuality. It's for enslavers and liars and perjurers. And if you've made it this far in the list, you say, well, no, those describe me. Well, then he's got a category for you. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, y'all. That's what he's saying here. Friends, God's law is like a mirror that shows us our sin. Paul says, I would, this is Romans chapter 7, I would not have known covetousness except for the law. The law is a mirror that shows us our sin. The law is a muzzle meant to restrain evil. I know this is true because I've been going down I-15. I mean, a friend of mine was going down I-15 <laughs> at high speeds. You know, it's like you're going north on I-15 and off on the left underneath this one bridge, there's a special place. It's like the hiding place behind the jersey barrier and the bridge post. And there's a special car with little lights that likes to sit there. And you, all of you up north, I'm looking around at some of you. You just watch. It's off to your left. You pass that, you see the police car, and what does your foot do? It breaks. I mean, it's just inevitable. It just, boop. You don't even know how fast you're going, but you just break. You just break. The law restrains evil. It just doesn't. It's a mirror that shows you your sin. It's meant to restrain evil. And finally, it's like a map. It's meant to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3.24, it's like a tutor that brings us to Jesus. You see, where the law diagnoses the sickness of our hearts, then the gospel of Jesus provides the remedy we so desperately need. False teaching was taking people off into myths and speculations and all of this fanciful garbage. They're trying to mix in the law somehow and use it as a springboard to jump off into these random stories. But Paul said, that's not the lawful use of the law. The lawful use of the law is to show you your sickness so that the gospel can bring the remedy. Do you see it in verse number 11? Paul mentions the gospel of the glory of the blessed God that had been entrusted to him. Friends, the gospel is a word that means good news because where the law condemns you, the good news frees you. Jesus, the eternal son of God, lived a sinless life and died a criminal's death. Why did he die a criminal's death? Because he died in our place. It says in Colossians 2, the record of debt that stood against us, all of our law breaking, the record of debt that stood against us was nailed to his cross. That's the good news. We're sinners who deserve the death penalty, but he dies in the place of sinners to give forgiveness and life in exchange. This is the message of the gospel. And it brings glory to our blessed God. Not praise to the man. It brings glory to God. This is what should be proclaimed. Fanciful tales and false teaching needs to be stopped so that the good news of the gospel can be proclaimed for God's glory and the church's good.
May we cling to the good news, both now and in the days ahead. May God help us to stay the course, stop any whispers of false teaching, and stick to the true gospel found in his word. Let's pray. I wonder if you'd just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment and reflect on the word of the Lord. I want a time for us to actually respond to God's word, not just be hearers, but say, Lord, what do you want me to do in light of this? I wonder if some of you know God's will, but you just had a rough go of it. Your circumstances have been difficult. Your trial has been hard. Maybe you've wanted an exit strategy. Perhaps today God is encouraging you to just stay the course. Maybe some of you have been exposed to false teaching. Maybe you grew up in it, or maybe God is showing you that the religion of your past is false. Maybe there are people who are leaving the Bible for books and blogs, and they need to stop listening to false teaching, and they need to get back to God's word. It's God stirring you to shut it down, get away from it, and get back to truth. Finally, perhaps God is showing you the importance of clinging to his word. Maybe you need the gospel to ground you in life. You need to hold fast to it. It might mean that you need to make a concerted effort to draw close to God's word this year. Maybe it means disciplined reading, scripture, memory, a daily input of God's truth. Well, if God is speaking to you this morning, then let's take time at the end of our service to pray over these lessons from the text. I want to put these up on the screen, just three questions. Is God encouraging you to stay the course this morning? Is God convicting you to stop listening to false teaching and leave it behind? Is God spurring you to cling to the truth of the gospel? I want to encourage you just to pray silently by yourself, or better yet, turn to someone near you and just share what God has taught you, and then pray for one another. Either way, let's turn this place into a house of prayer where we respond to God's word.